0: You're listening to the free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your listening and checking it out. But I got to be honest with you, you're not getting the full thing. That's right. There's two-thirds more show for you to be listening to. More discussions with Digby. More interviews with guests. So much more than that, even, because you can get access to our archives for over 10 years. How much is this going to cost you? A million dollars. No, not a million dollars, literally just pocket change a day, not even pocket change. I don't even know if your your change would jingle the amount of change it would take for you to support this program and to hear what you're missing. Head over to ROFpodcast.com right now, ROFpodcast.com right now to support this show. Thanks so much and enjoy. Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. On today's show, progressive superstar and New York Times bestselling author Tom Hartman will join us to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Adam Green from the Progressive Change Campaign Committee will be here to discuss last week's Democratic debates. Heather Digby-Parton will be here to help you run down a massive news week And our progressive candidate spotlight this week will be with Kara Eastman, who's running for Congress in Nebraska's 2nd District. If you're listening to the radio right now, you should know there's a free one-hour podcast of Ring of Fire Radio. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever your podcasts are found. There's also a member show. You can support Ring of Fire by becoming a member and getting a three-hour radio show commercial-free with access to over 10 years of our archives. You can go to ROFpodcast.com to sign up. Help me run down a busy week in the news. Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So, Heather, I think it's it's likely that uh, the next couple of months... Um, are going to be um, very similar in in at least form uh, to what we're going to be talking about today, and that is uh, largely um, the impeachment investigations that are going on that have uh, the, the, I want to say the drip, 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 but it's really more like the flow, flow, flow. I mean, there, we're getting a lot of information every day that is uh, particularly in the context of the relationship between the White House, uh, and I say that very uh, specifically, and Ukraine. Um, and uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking about the debate. We'll be touching on it with Adam Green in this program from the uh, C. but also you and I will um, will we'll discuss as well. Um, but uh, let's uh, turn to what we found out this week. And um, I don't know that we're going to get a chance to go off, go through it, because there seems to have been multiple, I guess, parallel operations of criminality, it seems to me, that um, were uh, headed towards the Ukraine from the White House and affiliated people. I don't know how else to express that, but it, it, it appears um, that not only do we have this sort of Basic um, uh, problem for the president in terms of what I think is an impeachable offense, without a doubt. And I think, frankly, there's enough um, evidence of it uh, to do it tomorrow, that he was leveraging money appropriated by Congress to uh, Ukraine uh, in holding that money back. So that he could get uh, Ukraine to basically come out and say that there's an investigation and here's some dirt on Joe Biden. I mean, I, I don't know how else to express that. And then simultaneously, there's stuff going on with Rudy Giuliani, stuff going on with Rick Perry. I mean, where where do we start?
1: Well, it's hard to know. This all seems to be very, you know, all intertwined. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's a Bill Barr uh, thread in this. Right. There's a Pompeo thread in this. I mean, we've got a State Department that is now in pretty much kind of open rebellion against Pompeo, uh, who apparently was involved in all this, who at least knew about it and didn't, you know, they, uh, approved of the sacking of the, uh, of the ambassador, the career ambassador who was working in Ukraine and, and understood all this. There were meetings in the White House where Trump was telling people, hey, you know, we're running all the Ukraine stuff through Rudy. Now, Rudy had no formal, you know, association with the government. He was working as Trump's personal lawyer, although we now know that he was being paid by these, um, you know, possibly a foreign entity laundering money through these two Ukrainian guys who were arrested last week. I mean, it is a wild a wild, wild story that's only getting wilder by the day. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is obviously right in the middle of it, but he's been conferring with Trump the whole time, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how that relationship holds up, because so far, you know, Trump has been saying, Rudy's a great guy, he's wonderful, but I didn't know anything about what he was doing. Well, we'll see whether or not Rudy's going to uh, allow that to continue, because he is on the hot seat. This guy is, uh, you know, clearly under investigation by the Southern District of New York, not only for these, you know, potential campaign finance crimes or maybe foreign, you know, unregistered foreign agent crimes, he's now uh, under investigation in a counterintelligence investigation, which puts him in an entirely different um, kind of category than he's been in before. He's in big trouble and his excuse so far has been sort of wavering between I was working for the president and I was also, you know, detailed by the State Department. Well, you know, somehow or another, this stuff is, some of this is not going to hold up. So, I mean, it's a very, very interesting story. And if I could just make one, one point that I think is really important. Please. One of the reasons why this is, is, is hitting so hard and why we are, um, you know, suddenly people are paying attention. I think this is the kind of stuff that Trump's been doing throughout his his presidency. I mean, we don't know what went on with Saudi Arabia. We don't know his relationships with with Russia. We don't know all the details of his relationships with Israel, for instance. I mean, but there has been – he's been running what they're now rightfully calling a shadow foreign policy on his own that is not necessarily – uh, sanctioned or even, even you know, aware of by members of his administration, although some of them clearly were in various aspects of it. But, you know, the thing is, is that the reason this is hitting so hard is that it's really a mirror image of what he, we, you know, suspected he did during the campaign. All of this kind of, you know, back channel, having talks, you know, getting notes from somebody, some, you know, uh, what was he, at entertainment manager? from, you know, a British entertainment manager talking about his Russian clients, and we've got some dirt on Hillary Clinton, and all of this stuff, it's just, you know, it echoes in your mind, and I think people are finally starting to go. They saw the Mueller report, they'd seen all the leaks that came out before, there were two years of this, but there was this sense that, well, it was during the campaign, and yeah, he obstructed justice, what are you going to do about that, because you can't indict him, and yeah, he's kind of a crook, but we knew that. But this idea that he would do it as president, and that not only would he do it as president, but the minute the Mueller report came out, he cranked it up, knowing that he was not going to get it done. I mean, the timing of this is just, it's so obvious, that he, the Ukraine thing was just, he, he, I'm sure he'd been talking about it for some time, but once he realized that Mueller was not going to have any real teeth, He just went for it. And that's something that I think is starting to resonate with people, that this guy is incorrigible. He does not learn what, you know, maybe they chalked it up to his ignorance. He was a neophyte. He wasn't a Washington guy or whatever. No more excuses. It's out there. So I think it's starting to make people... Even some people that you wouldn't expect maybe feel uh, a lot more uncomfortable about this guy, what he's doing as president. Um, and then, of course, you know, pile Syria on top of all that. And we've got a real explosive mess on our hands.
0: Right. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk Syria coming up. But, but who are the people yeah. that you're thinking about? I mean, because what we've seen this week um, that uh, occurs to me is that um, subordinates to Mike Pompeo in the State Department who are career diplomats, right? I mean, they're senior advisors to um, uh, Pompeo, but they were there at the State Department a lot longer than, than, um, than Mike Pompeo. These, these are not, I mean, you know, people say the deep state. These are simply career di- diplomats who right. um, I think have uh, hit the wall because they have realized it's one thing to be sidelined, which I think uh, they were in many respects, But I think they've now found out why they were sidelined. And Pompeo had basically said, we're not sending these people to come and testify to you. And all we've seen this week is one after another. Um, On Wednesday, it was um, McKinley who uh, recently resigned. Uh, Prior to that, it was Kent who was another State Department uh, official. All these people were involved with um, either Ukraine or uh, Eurasia. And they were all sidelined because of this sort of rogue uh, or, you know, government within a government that Donald Trump was running. And that government within a government was pursuing an entirely different set, uh, a different agenda. Uh, we'll talk more about this when we get back. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio talking to Digby. And we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Digby. So, Heather, when we broke, we were talking about the sort of the, the impeachment stuff seems to be just sort of pouring out. And I think at this point we now have only seven Democrats in the House who have not declared publicly their support for this impeachment inquiry. And uh, earlier this week, uh, Schiff and Pelosi came out and made an announcement that they would not be seeking a vote. Uh, on impeachment in the House. They they don't need the vote, and I think they don't want to put pressure on those seven people who haven't announced publicly. There are some districts where I think um, there is a sense that uh, supporting impeachment would be problematic for them. I, you know, I, I, I guess these representatives understand their districts more than others, and really um, the pu- push is going to come to shove when there's an opportunity to actually vote for impeachment. Now, there has been an ongoing debate within democratic circles as to how this should be handled now it's clearly the net is widening right i mean we have more people involved you mentioned uh, in the last segment rudy giuliani now under investigation by the feds and uh... not for just criminal activity but for counterintelligence activity um... there is i think reason to wonder if mike pompeo will be impeached if Bill Barr will be impeached uh, this week, Mick Mulvaney, um, I don't think he's in an impeachable uh, position, but uh, he certainly seems implicated. The um, senior state department official in charge of Ukraine policy. A guy named George P. Kent, the deputy assistant secretary in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Um, came out of uh, a closed-door session, I guess it was earlier in the week, and uh, basically said that Mick Mulvaney was um, the one who was sidelining all these people in dealing with uh, Ukraine to make room for the three amigos and their, I guess, their Pancho Villa, the three amigos being Rick Perry, Gordon Sundland, who was the you uh EU uh ambassador and a hotelier uh you know who gave money to Trump uh Rick Perry and um I guess it was Kurt Volker and they were the ones who basically took over Ukrainian uh, policy with an assist from Rudy Giuliani now It seems that those three were not only involved in trying to pressure the Ukrainian president, but also to get their buddies on the same board of the same company that Hunter Biden was on. And Hunter Biden was pushing back to having those guys on. I mean, this just it's the the it's incredible. The the corruption just seems to be never ending. And I think for normal people, we're just like, who would do this? And who would be this relentless? And now we know.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, it would be the Trumps and, you know, specifically Donald in this case. But you can see that, you know, his his kids as well all over the world. Another story. But um, this is who they are. And, you know, I think that over the course of the last three years is, you know, but Report after report after report, I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be 30 to 35 percent of the public who just think it's all fake. It's just an incredible, you know, they're just going to believe that. But for an awful lot of people, the weight of this, I think, has just become overwhelming, which is just, you know, this is beyond politics. It is it is now at a phase where we just have a criminal and and a very stupid one. And it's obvious that, you know, he has been using the power of the presidency for his own political benefit, and I think most of us suspect for his own financial benefit, too. I mean, certainly the hotels and all the rest, that's all out there. Um, you know, this this mess in Ukraine, it, it is almost, it's unbelievable just how bold they were with it. That's this. what I, I mean. mean I, no, I mean, it's this, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I'm going, you know, who would be so Dumb. Now, in some ways, you have to give Trump a little bit of credit because he seems to have kind of had this some of these things siloed in different places, right? You know, he had, I mean, Rick Perry, who you know, not the brightest bulb, we know that. Right. He may not have known seriously. He may not have known about the political side of it, but he's a totally corrupt crook in there trying to leverage American power for this gas deal that he was trying to do with the, uh, you know, with the company you mentioned that Biden was working with. I mean, he may not have known part of it, but he certainly knew the other corrupt part of it. And at the center of this, of course, is Rudy. And I'm not sure. I mean, he's, his head is spinning with with conspiracies. I don't get the sense that he's even got them straight in his head. And he just throws these things out there. And I think Trump then issues orders and somebody, you know, and people go along with it. I mean, this is what's been happening. And, and now sort of looking back, you can see that, it, you know, as the Mueller report came up and Trump saw very clearly that he had Barr there to protect him, who would not let anything happen to him on any kind of a legal uh, since, and that they had successfully spun the report as kind of old news, you know, hey, we all knew it, and you know whatever um, that basically they decided to just you know ramp it up and, and yep. going into the two thousand and twenty election and and you think you know i mean exactly it 's your it 's your comment you no know, who does this I mean the idea well, being that you know he's he 's under a microscope, he knows that, but he he seemingly just either doesn't understand it or doesn't care or some element of both.
0: Well, I mean, and and we're up against a break right here and we'll pick this up in the next hour. But I think what is starting to emerge is a picture of a guy who understands how to do this, which is you sideline the people you can't trust, but then you get as many people implicated in as many different ways as you can of those people who are inside. Because uh, the more that their fates are all tied together, the safer Trump is. We got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with more Ring of Fire. Digby, if you'll join me in the next hour, we have more to talk about in terms of this impeachment inquiry. Uh, and also, uh, just uh, general news and the debate. Uh, we, we had quite a week. We'll be right back. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Coming up, progressive superstar Tom Hartman. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Today's show was made possible in part by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist by way of phone, by way of video, by way of chat, whichever. And they're giving Ring of Fire radio listeners 10% off your first month when you go to betterhelp.com slash ROFRadio. That's betterhelp.com slash ROFRadio. You'll be paired up and communicating with your therapist within 24 hours of signing up. You don't have to go into an office. You can do it from home or you can do it when you're on the go. You can do it from the wherever you are. You can log into your account at any time, too, and you can send messages to your therapist. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. You can schedule your live weekly meetings in a way that fits your schedule. If you don't think your therapist is working out, no problem. You can switch to someone new at any time for no extra cost. It's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy. It's a great way to dip your toe into therapy if you've never done it before. And on top of that, financial aid is available. You'll get 10% off your first month when you go to betterhelp.com, R-O-F radio. That's it. betterhelp, betterhel com slash R-O-F radio. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, a man who needs no further introduction, Tom Hartman. So, Tom, uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, this is uh, largely about how the Supreme Court has, in many respects, um, and, and every branch of government, I guess, although I, we don't see Congress doing it much these days, um, attempts to uh, strengthen their position in the context of uh, the checks and balances. I mean, broadly speaking, because I, I, I do want to um, – you, you bring up uh, Bill Barr in the book quite a bit, um, at the very least. Um, and um, uh, I want to talk about Bill Barr, but um, how broadly speaking has the Supreme Court – Usurped more authority than um, than they were intended to have.
2: Well. Originally, the court was designed as the court of last appeals, and twice in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton talks about how the court is the least likely to offend. They don't have the power of the of the sword, which the executive branch has. They don't have the power of the purse, which the legislative branch has. Don't worry, everything's good. They're not going to mess with things, and they'll just be you know people sue each other, and eventually it's got to some the buck's got to end somewhere. But in 1803, in a case called Marbury versus Madison, uh, this the John Marshall, the chief Justice took the power onto himself to strike down a law that had been passed by Congress or part of a law and uh, signed by president washington and this was during the presidency of thomas jefferson and he went nuts he just started screaming about this he said you know if this stands then we're no longer a democracy we've become a constitutional monarchy these people are not elected they're not accountable to the people you know i thought we believed in democracy he said under this construction the constitution has become a suicide pact he wrote to abigail adams saying this the Constitution has now become a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary. The blowback was so strong from this that Marshall, who served on the bench longer than any Supreme Court justice, Chief Justice in history, never did it again. And in fact, the second time it happened in the first hundred years of America's history was in 1856, when Roger Taney, the Chief Justice, thought he would solve the slavery problem once and for all in the Dred Scott decision. Which also involved judicial review—the the you know striking down of laws passed by Congress, and in this case, laws that uh, allowed for free states versus slave states, and you know that led us right to the Civil War. Now, this is pretty much all the Supreme Court does. Jefferson's prophecy is proved true. We are no longer a, a constitutional democracy. We are a full-blown constitutional monarchy, and most Americans don't even realize it. It's pretty astonishing stuff, Sam.
0: Okay, and so what does that mean, a constitutional monarchy, and how does that play out? Is is, is the power vested in the Supreme Court, or is, is the Supreme Court yeah. has essentially provided for the power to, to exist in the executive?
2: Now, the Supreme Court has taken this power onto themselves. They have said, we are the final arbiters of what the Constitution means. And again, in the Constitution, it does not say that that is a power that the Supreme Court has. They took it onto themselves. And now you've got these five guys who are using the scam that Robert Bork invented in the 1970s called originalism. It's sort of like, remember when Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson the day after 9-11 were on TV saying, you know, God allowed this to happen because America tolerates homosexuality and feminism. It's like whenever anybody tells you that they know what God thinks or what the founders think, run in the other direction. They are hustlers and scam artists, and we've got five of them on the court now. And they have not only claimed the right to strike down laws passed by Congress, they have claimed the right to literally write a law. I mean, that's what happened in Plessy versus Ferguson was separate but equal. That is a legislative process. The Supreme Court did it, and this is what I, – I can give you dozens of examples. So in a constitutional monarchy, the monarch, the unelected hereditary royal family, has the final say. They have the ability to dissolve parliament. They have the ability to strike down laws. They have the final say. By the Supreme Court taking this power and not just occasionally using it, like in the first hundred years of our history, they did it three or four times, but instead using it literally, you know, ninety percent of the time to the exclusion of pretty much everything else. It's like after Obamacare was passed, everybody was like, "Oh, great, we've got a law. Now let's wait. Let's let's see if the Supreme Court will allow it." That's right. not how democracies work.
0: Well, now, so how were questions of constitutionality supposed to be resolved, if not by the Supreme Court?
2: Excellent question. And people will say to me, you know, well, what if, you know, what if Congress and the president passed a law saying that if you insult Donald Trump, you go to prison? And, you know, it's obviously a violation of the First Amendment. It's unconstitutional. What would happen? And uh, my answer is that already happened, and it was solved without the Supreme Court. I'll tell you about that in a second. But um, uh, George Mason wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson after Jefferson went bonkers about the, the Marbury case and said, well, you know, if the court's not the final arbiter of what's constitutional, who is? And Jefferson replied with three words. He said, the people themselves. And that that three word phrase is the title of a book by Larry Kramer, the dean of the law school at Stanford University, or former dean, which is a critique of the Supreme Court and this concept of judicial review, and it's brilliant. And Jefferson's point was, Congress has primary power of the purse, All spending has to originate in the House of Representatives. Primary power of taxation, all taxes have to originate in the House of Representatives. And primary power to make war, all war-making has to originate in the House of Representatives. And every single member of the House is up for election every two years. So he said that, you know, if something is patently unconstitutional, the people should throw the bums out and get people in, get a new set of bums in who will pass laws that are constitutional. And that's what happened in 1898. John Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Act that said that it was a crime to, quote, bring the president into disrepute. And the day that he signed that act, he had Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, who published a newspaper called The Aurora in Massachusetts, thrown into prison, took his newspaper away from him, took his home away from him, and kept him in jail for a year for publishing an an article about Adams that said that John Adams is, quote, old, toothless, querulous, which means cranky, and balding, for that he went to prison. 20 newspaper publishers went to prison, 18 newspapers were closed. Thomas Jefferson, the day that the Alien Sedition Act was signed in the summer of 1798, he was vice president to Adams' president. He, he left town and he never again spoke to John Adams in person, they hated each other for most of the rest of their lives, they reconciled later on but it was all by correspondence. But what happened was, because of that overreach by John Adams, um, stories, like one of the more famous stories is a the guy, the guy by the name of Luther Baldwin. He was the town drunk in, in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and he was sitting in a bar. John Adams had passed a, 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 a law or a rule that said that whenever he and his wife came through town in a carriage, the local militia had to come out, shoot their guns in the air, and everybody shouted at the same time. God save President Adams. And so that was going on on the street out in front of this bar that Luther's sitting in. He's drunk. He says to the bartender, he says, ah, they're firing the cannons. I hope they fire one up, up Adams' arse. And the bartender was a Federalist which was Adams' party, he turned Luther Baldwin in, and Luther Baldwin went to prison for a year. That kind of story. Matthew Lyon, on the floor of the House of Representatives, condemned Adams. He went to jail. They, they took him up to Virginia, Vermont, and he spent a year and a half at an unheated jail cell. He ran for re-election in 1800 on this issue and won re-election in 1800. In fact, uh, Dan, Dan Sisson and I wrote a book about this election. It's called The American Revolution of 1800, is the title of our book. And in that election the Federalists were just swept out. They just got wiped out. And, and Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Party took over the House, the Senate, the White House. They undid the, the, the alien sedition law, etc. That that's how, in a democracy, the people fix excesses of government, not by having nine uh, lifetime-appointed monarchs say, in our judgment, this is how it should be. And by the way, their judgment has changed. The court has reversed itself at least 60 times over the years. In fact, Brown versus Board of Education was simply reversing Plessy versus Ferguson. I mean,
0: I don't know if I want to go to prison for criticizing Donald Trump and hope that the electorate gets it right this time, frankly. Um, But um, it it
2: it but would... the Supreme Court, this this court may well rule that that a modern day Alien and Sedition Act is just fine. You had a you know the Supreme Court in 1917 when Woodrow Wilson passed an Alien and Sedition Act and started putting people like you and me in jail for speaking out against World War One. Supreme Court said, oh, that's just fine, no problem. It well, wasn't the court that ended it; it was the legislature. Again, All right, well,
0: we got to take a break. Uh, when we come back on the other side, want to talk a little bit more about this dynamic, and uh, but also. You, uh, you have a chapter where uh, much is written about Bill Barr and, um, yes. you, and, and how he has uh, – this is not his first rodeo when it comes to protecting a president who has broken the law. We've got to take a quick break. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. I'll be right back with the great Tom Hartman. back on ring of fire radio i'm sam cedar right now it is my honor to be talking with the great tom hartman about his new book the hidden history of the supreme court and the betrayal of america so tom in the um in the last uh segment you you basically outlined for us uh the the premise of your book um uh, about the supreme court it is a um Uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, where you make the argument that the Supreme Court was never supposed to have final say over the constitutionality of things. It was supposed to be um, uh, basically the the last stop on on various cases that just had to do, I guess, with uh, civil and criminal questions uh, within the the Constitution and that uh, the public via their elected representatives was supposed to resolve these constitutional questions. And we're certainly in an era where there seems to be uh, quite a few uh, constitutional questions. I mean, I guess from the emoluments perspective, the idea would be you've got to impeach the president. And if you don't impeach the president, we're going to vote you out, essentially.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, well, and, and, and plus, you know, I think I disagree with the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion that you can't prosecute a president. I mean, you know, I think that Donald Trump should also be facing criminal charges right now.
0: Well, I, I happen to uh, agree with that as well. And when we talk about the Office of the Legal Counsel, uh, there is somebody on the scene right now. He is our attorney general who was in the Office of Legal Counsel uh, 30 years ago now, I guess, maybe even a little bit more. And um well, he talking was the
2: about he's actually the attorney general, yeah, which runs and, the Office of Legal Counsel
0: yeah. and Bill Barr and uh, the Office yep. of Legal Counsel has been one of those places that's uh, particularly during uh, Republican presidencies have um, had some rather controversial rulings, which. Basically, uh, functions as their own little Supreme Court, uh, saying that they have made decisions about the Constitution and more or less, there is really no recourse outside of an independent council, which we no longer have anymore, um, to address those type of um, uh, rulings or uh, questions or uh, criminality. So tell us a little bit about Bill Barr's history in protecting a law-breaking president.
2: Well, in 1992, uh, Lawrence Walsh was a special prosecutor. He'd been on the job for about two years, appointed by Congress, to look into the Iran-Contra scandal. And the principal question, uh, questions that they were looking at were um, they knew that the shipment of uh, spare parts, uh, tires specifically, to Iran via Israel, it actually started in 1980 during the election. Before, the, before Reagan was elected. And and apparently that was to encourage the Iranians to hold the hostages, which is what President Bani Sadr of Iran has publicly testified to. And um, Lawrence Walsh was closing in. I mean, this is a major treasonous felony To win the presidency, to win the White House, make Jimmy Carter look bad. And the key to this whole thing would have been George Herbert Walker Bush's uh, diary from the campaign. And he could have ended up in federal prison if he had to turn that diary over. And Lawrence uh, Walsh had obtained convictions of Casper Weinberger, of Ollie North, of Elliot Abrams, all these guys for their participation in Iran Contra. And he was closing in on Bush, and he just subpoenaed the book. And this was December of 1993. To Christmas Eve, it was uh, it was uh, five, six, seven weeks after Bush had lost the election to Bill Clinton. It was three weeks before Bush was going to leave office and lose his immunities, and Bill Clinton was going to come into office. And Lawrence Walsh had finally gotten uh, court approval for the for the uh, uh, subpoena for the Bush diary. And Bush turned to his attorney general, Bill Barr, and said, "Help me out. What am I? Do- you know, how do I stop this thing?" And Bill Barr said, "Pardon everybody." If you pardon everybody involved in the Iran-Contra investigation, the the independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, will no longer have any witnesses, and he will no longer have a basis to uh, to force that uh, search warrant or that uh, excuse me subpoena, and uh, so Bush did that. And he did that on Christmas Eve, uh, the screaming three column all the way across the top, all caps headline in the New York Times uh, was um, uh, independent prosecutors and inv- uh, Weinberger pardoned prosecutors uh, investigation shut down Lawrence Walsh cries cover up. And it was Bill Barr behind the whole thing. And he bragged about it. In fact, in 2000, in an oral biography, he said, you know, uh, yeah, I was the guy who did this. Uh, You know, I told him, pardon them all. I was in for a penny, in for a pound. And uh, so, you know, when you need a guy, when a Republican president is trying to cover up a crime and you need a guy who who will come in and no questions asked, just do the dirty work. Bill Barr is your guy.
0: And he has certainly uh, performed that role to a T this time. I mean, the um, he has he, he has run that same playbook, it seems maybe even more aggressive yep. in, in many yeah. respects.
2: And and, and and in 92, Bill Bill Barr was actually one of the people that was, Walsh was looking at. I mean, you know, he was he, he was faced with the possibility of going to prison, too. So, he, you know, he's he shut down the whole thing. And I'm I'm wondering if he's facing that same possibility now. Keep in mind, John Mitchell went to prison for 19 months for what he did as as Nixon's attorney general. Forgive my interrupting
0: well no and i, I think this is uh, on point i mean the other thing that i think we learned about bill barr this week was that he seems to also be um have some sort of like culture warrior fundamentalism about him as he decried the secularism is that is that uh does he have a pedigree of that or is it is it simply that he is attempting to echo uh, donald trump in some
2: fashion no he's one of these um Clarence Thomas Eugene Scalia um, Opus Dei type fundamentalist hardcore right wing Catholics, and I don't know if he goes to the same church as the as the Catholics on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, Thomas was recruited into this uh, this Opus Dei church. Um, uh, Roberts goes there. Um, I, I don't know if he goes to that same church. I don't know if he's Opus Dei, but he is a fundamentalist right wing Catholic, and. And within that particular strain of Catholicism, there's often this, this idea of the noble lie, that it's okay to tell a small lie to create a greater good. And I think that Bill Barr has been basically running his life that way, you know, anything in the service of power. He's one of these people, I mean, this is an argument that goes back to the founding of the Republican in, and in some ways kind of mirrors the whole Supreme Court thing about where does power actually lie? And he's one of those people who has always been distrustful of democracy and distrustful of the people, the rabble, as John Adams referred to us, and, and um, you know b- believes that there should be this higher power you know, and, and that the president should have massive amounts of power because you just can't trust the people. And so I think this is completely consistent uh, with everything I've seen and read about his worldview.
0: Uh, well, it's fascinating. And certainly, um, you know, Donald Trump was looking for his Roy Cohn. It, it feels an awful He's lot him. like he found them. Uh, folks yep. can check out your your book more to uh, to get the specifics on um, uh, on Bill Barr and on the sort of the growth, I guess, this power grab of the Supreme Court. And certainly as we. Uh, Look towards the future. Knock on wood. uh, We don't uh, see Donald Trump have the opportunity to appoint another one uh, Supreme Court member. But uh, this is going to be a big question, I think, for the next president, hopefully uh, a Democratic president, as to how they will treat the the, what kind of uh, reforms they will subject the Supreme Court to. Tom Hartman, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time today.
2: Thanks so much, Sam. Great talking with you.
0: Tom Hartman is, of course, the host of the Tom Hartman program and a New York Times bestselling author. You can buy his new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, wherever books are sold. When we come back, Heather Parton will join us to analyze more news from the past week that's just ahead. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Don't forget, ROFpodcast.com to support the show and hear what you've been missing.
1: Falling from high places, falling through lost spaces.